So here we go. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here, from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay. So there have been many throughout the history of the church that contend that this actually isn't a parable. There's really two reasons why why some argue that this isn't a parable. That this is actually a true story that happened. You guys think of anything that might lead some to think that this isn't a story that Jesus is telling, but this is actually something that happened? You guys notice anything that maybe is a little different about this story than the parables that we've been looking at? A, A character with a name, right? Lazarus. So think about it. The, we've got the Good Samaritan. He's anonymous. Uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, these guys aren't named. They're just some guys. We've got the father and his two sons, the prodigal son and the older son. And we've got uh, the generous landowner. We've got a sower. We've got all these people are anonymous. They don't actually have names that Jesus gives them. But he gives Lazarus an an actual specific name. So there are some that would say that because that, this isn't a parable. This is something that actually happened. There's also one more thing that is maybe a little bit harder to see. You guys think of anything? Oh, Abraham, right? Well, yeah, he says Abraham is there, and then he says to listen to Moses and the prophets. So, yeah, we got more names. One other thing that people will recognize is that in all the other parables we've seen, these are like... Remember, some people have labeled parables as like uh, everyday uh, occurrences that kind of mirror spiritual realities. Well, in this story, we actually leave the everyday life and go into the spiritual realities. We go into heaven and hell, right? Uh, And so there are some that say, since this transcends our everyday life, this isn't just a story that sounds like Jesus made up to kind of give us an analogy of the way things are, but this is actually the way things are. So therefore, this isn't a parable. Uh... Those are valid points. I think we'll talk about Lazarus and his name in a little bit. But 
if this isn't a parable, we've got some pretty big problems with the way we understand heaven and hell. Uh, do, do people in heaven and hell get to talk to each other? Uh, do, do all poor people go to heaven and all rich people go to hell? Is that the way it seems? I've read, uh, read one author this week. He said, the story seems to be saying life is unfair. But never mind. God's going to even things up in the next life, right? Lazarus had a hard time here, and as a result, he's going to enjoy good times in heaven. The rich man had a good life on earth and will therefore automatically spend eternity in hell. Put it bluntly, the parable would then mean if you're comfortable here, like all of us pretty much, hell awaits you. If you're homeless here, heaven is guaranteed. Right? If this is the way, if this is a true story, and this is what Jesus concludes of this true story, then this kind of, we've got some major questions about heaven and hell and this life and the next. I think if we understand this a parable as a parable, remember what we said about parables? Parables aren't portraits, they aren't perfect uh, pictures of things that we see, but they're analogies, right? So if we think of this as a parable and as an analogy, as an analogy, uh, then I think we can understand it a lot better. And then there's one more thing. Jesus st- starts his story was there was a rich man. Did you see what he did in 16.1 when we looked at the dishonest manager? He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And in 15.11, the parable of the prodigal son, he said there was a man who had two sons. This is a common intro to his parables. He's not saying, let me tell you about this story about this guy maybe in Jerusalem uh, who was rich. Now he's just saying, look, once upon a time, there was a rich man. I'm telling you a parable now. So I'm convinced this is a parable, so that's why we're looking at it today. So, before we really get going at it, um, look, look at this. This is in the same chapter. This is pretty much right after our parable of the shrewd manager that we looked at two weeks ago, right? Uh, so it's coming out of that context. And I wanted to kind of go a little bit further in our in our text two weeks ago with the shrewd manager in verses 10 through 13, but we kind of ran out of time because the movie was so long. Uh, but let's read that real quick. This is following the parable of the dishonest or the shrewd manager. In verse 10, 16, he says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is not your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, this is kind of confusing, and it's following the most confusing parable that we've looked at thus far, this parable of the dishonest manager. Can somebody sum up in like two or three sentences the parable of the dishonest manager or the shrewd manager? It was really confusing. Can anyone try to sum that up to help us remember what that was about? It's a hard one. I'll give you a hint. I'll start you off. If this son of darkness, the, the dishonest or shrewd manager, understood his system so well that he knew the reactions of everyone around and the way to benefit himself and his system, then we, you children of light, should do the same. Do likewise, right? We should understand our system, our kingdom in which we live so well that we make decisions and plans 
not to elevate ourselves, but to elevate the king of this kingdom. Okay? So, Jesus then says, look at this, verse 11. He says, If then you have not been, if then you have, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you true riches? Remember what we talked about? Do you remember what we talked about? This unrighteous wealth? Anybody? What do we mean? What does Jesus mean here when he says unrighteous wealth? Yeah, what? Uh, maybe that's what that's what the dishonest or the shrewd manager did. Yeah, money that's not yours. Money that's like kingdom of earth type stuff, right? Uh, actual dollar bills or denarii or whatever the case may be. This, this is stuff of the kingdom of the earth. So Jesus is saying, if you don't treat your unrighteous wealth, your money, your time, your resources, all this stuff well, then why would God give you kingdom of heaven type stuff, like wisdom and knowledge of Him? So He's saying that you, all of you, you sons of light, are managers. You're stewards like this guy. We think of David when he wrote in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything that we see or have belongs to God, not to us. Or when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So all of you who are boasting about all this money and wealth and fame that you have, why do you boast as if you achieved it yourself? God gave it to you. You received it. So, then he goes and talks about two masters, you sons of light and darkness. You, you tend to worship money and God, but you can't. You can't do that. And then, really confusingly, in verse 18, then he just says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in... What? (laughs) He just talks one verse about divorce after talking about money and dishonest and shrewd managers and serving two masters. What, What is he doing here? Wait, look at what... We skip this verse, but look at what the Pharisees say. If you've got these red letter Bibles, the, the one little black verse in the midst of all this in chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things and they ridiculed him, or laughed at him, or scoffed at him. They thought what Jesus has to say about all this stuff is ridiculous. And so they're laughing like out loud at him. They think he doesn't understand... God or money or anything at all. So they're ridiculing him. So Jesus says, right after that, in verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is saying here, he's saying, the law and the prophets have been teached through all of your history, Israel, until now, when John the Baptist came preaching about the coming kingdom that I am bringing in, and now the kingdom is here, but you have completely missed the point of the law and the prophets. Here's why. One, you love money more than you love God. You are idolaters. You don't worship God. You love money. You worship money. And here's another way I know that you don't understand the law and the prophets. Because you divorce your wives just willy-nilly. You don't, even, you don't consider the covenant that you have made to your wife. You, 
you hate those around you. You hate your brothers and sisters around you. He's, he's saying uh, you don't worship God. The most, the most clear example of that is that you love money, and you don't love your brothers and sisters. You don't love those around you. You don't love your neighbor. The most clear example of that is that you just divorce. You don't care about those around you. So you have a complete misunderstanding or you are neglecting the law and the prophets. So, that's where we are now when we get to the beginning of this parable. Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you, you Israel, you are missing the point. You don't love God and you don't love others. Okay? So, now that we're there, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Let's make a couple observations about this first verse. Verse 19, what do we see here? A couple things. What, just what do you notice? What do you observe? He's rich. How, obviously, Jesus says he's rich, but how else do we know that he's rich? Yeah, so purple is a very rare and expensive dye. It's, it comes from like fruits and, and rocks that are very rare in Lebanon. It has to, you have to ship them in. And so when someone is wearing purple in these days, it's a, it's a sign that they're very, very wealthy. And he's wearing it, kind of flaunting it, right? I'm rich. I know it. And I want all of you to know it. Okay? What else? Look at these last three words. Sumptuously every day. He feasted sumptuously every day. What's... What's important about this? Maybe not for us in our culture, but in Jewish culture, why is this such a big deal that he's feasting sumptuously every day? Yeah? Yeah, so he's neglecting his neighbors, right? Neglecting the poor. It's a very important observation, but there's something else I'm going after here. Yeah, maybe not fast, but he's ignoring the Sabbath, okay? Because if he's feasting sumptuously, if he's, if he's having this huge party, then he's making his servants work. He's uh, basically ignoring the law of God here. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. He, by feasting sumptuously every day, he's not honoring the Sabbath as God has prescribed in the law. So... Here, again, we have a blatant lawbreaker, one who's disregarding the law and the prophets. So Jesus tells us that in the very first verse here. And then, verse 20 and 21, And at this rich guy's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with, that, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So other people cared for this guy, Lazarus. How do we know that? Well, other people. How do we know that other people cared for him? They actually came and laid him at the rich man's gate, right? They didn't have resources to provide for this guy because they were poor too, but they brought him daily to the rich man's gate, hoping that the one man in the village who did have the resources to care for him might actually do so. Okay? Uh, And then he lies outside of this daily party. I kind of always thought of this as like, He's sitting outside the city walls, like in a big medieval city. But he's really probably, this is probably a really small village. He's just kind of sitting outside the fence. 
and there's this house right here, and he hears the clinking of glasses and the laughing and partying every single day, just longing for the trash, like the carcass of the turkey that your dad carved with just the little tiny bits of meat and fat that are still on the bone. That's what he wanted. He didn't even want like a big, nice thing of turkey, right? He just wanted to be able to suck the bone, just a little bit of nutrition, but he doesn't even get that. And then moreover, the dogs, the most unholy, come and lick him. If he's surely unclean by his sores, then he's made even more unclean by the dogs who are licking him. Okay, so now let's talk about this guy's name, Lazarus. If this wasn't a real guy, if this is a parable, why did Jesus give him a name? One thing, Lazarus is a really common name. There's lots of guys in this, in this day named Lazarus. And so I don't think we should just think that this is the same Lazarus in the book of John that Jesus raises from the dead. I don't think this is that guy at all. I always kind of thought that when I was a kid, that this is the same guy. But unrelated. Okay. The reason I think Jesus gives him a name is because what... Lazarus' name means. Lazarus is kind of like a shorthand nickname of the, of the name Eleazar, or El-Azar, which, mean, which means God helps. If there is anyone in the world who it appears that God is surely not helping, it's this guy, right? He's homeless, he's covered in sores, he's dying of hunger, he has nothing, and yet his name is God helps. So, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But Jesus, again, is kind of flipping things up. He's sneaking past our preconceived notions about who God helps and who God is for. So, then verse 22 and 23, both guys die. We don't know how. We aren't, we, it's just a story, right? And the, Lazarus is taken to Abraham's side, which... Another, maybe some other versions that you might have say Abraham's bosom means with the, the connotation here is that there's a big party, a big banquet in Lazarus's honor. Now that he is finally in heaven, Abraham is hosting this big party and he puts him at the place of honor right next to him. It's the same kind of thing that in the Last Supper when John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, sits at, at Jesus's bosom. He's, the, he's like the most honorable place at the party, at the banquet. So this party is for Lazarus, and he's at Abraham's side. And then uh, the, the rich man is taken to Hades, or hell, where he sees Lazarus feasting sumptuously, finally. Now la- the tables have turned, right? Now Lazarus is the one feasting sumptuously, and the rich man is just wanting a little bit of scraps, a little bit of alleviation. And then verse 24, let's look at some observations here. So tell me what you see. Here's 24. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. What do we see here? A couple things. Why does he call him Father Abraham? Yeah. Right? Is he doing this? No. He's not singing Father Abraham. Uh, what, 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 uh, why does he call him Father Abraham? Abraham. He's a Jew. He's saying, Abraham, I'm one of your sons. I'm a son of Israel. I'm a son of Abraham. 
this is completely unexpected. How is this happening? How am I in hell when I'm, I'm a Jew? I'm an Israelite. I'm, I'm a son of Abraham. Why? How? Wait, what's going on here? Okay, so he's playing the racial card. He's saying, I'm one of your sons, so what's going on? But then, what else? Who does he talk to? He's talking to Abraham, right? Surely we would think, now that he's seen how the tables have turned, and look at this, he knows Lazarus' name. He tells, he tells Abraham, he says, send Lazarus. So this guy, who was sitting outside of his gate, every day he actually knew his name. Okay? But surely, now that he's seen that Lazarus is the one that's being honored at this banquet, surely since he knows his name, he's going to ask Lazarus's forgiveness, right? He's going to tell him, Lazarus, I'm so sorry that I ignored you, that I neglected you all of those years and let you starve. But no, he doesn't, right? He tells Abraham to basically send him as his errand boy. You see that? He says, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I read an author paraphrasing what he's saying. He's saying to Abraham, hey, now that Lazarus is kind of feeling better, now that he's on the up and up and on his feet, I still want a few things from him, right? Given who I am and who he is, being of the servant class, such service is definitely still expected of him. So, Abraham, when you get a chance to actually hurry up about it, uh, send him down here. Send him down here to kind of alleviate my discomfort. Right? He's still making demands. He's in hell, and he's still making demands from Lazarus. This is crazy. But he's still not loving those who aren't a part of his class. He's still neglecting those who, are be- what he th- who he thinks is below him. Okay? But then Abraham says something that's kind of confusing. Verses 25 and 26, he says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his like manner, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So this is where some have said what I said at the beginning, right? So it looks as though Abraham is saying, if you're homeless, you're good, you're going to heaven. If you're rich, you're damned, right? Is this what he's saying? I don't think so. A couple things. I think he's saying that those who appear to be blessed by God, right? Those who are rich, wealthy, have the means to feast sumptuously every day, may not actually be blessed by God. They might just have a bunch of stuff, which may not equate to God's blessing. And those who, it is obvious, right? Remember we said, if there is anyone who it appears that God is not helping, if, it is there, if there is anyone who is not blessed by God, maybe those people actually are. Lazarus is the one who God helps. But then also, Jesus says something similar to this elsewhere in the Gospels. Can you think of anything else where Jesus says something about the rich? It's a famous one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's easier for uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's this about? Why does Jesus say that? 
He seems to be saying the same thing. Jesus seems to be saying, if you're rich, you're not going to heaven. So why does he say that, Drew? That's right. We in 21st century America have need for very little, right? Even when we get sick, we still have doctors, still have the finest medicine in the world. Very few of us have actually been hungry for more than a couple hours, right? So we very, very rarely see ourselves as in need. And my guess is, however rich this man was in this parable, that he had the means to feast sumptuously every day, he is poor compared to us. With the houses and the TVs and the cars and everything else that we have every day. And so I think Jesus is saying, when we, when we think of the rich, we tend to think of like Bill Gates and the multi-billionaires, right? But I think when Jesus is talking about the rich, we should think about ourselves because we are very rich compared to the history of humankind, right? We have need for hardly anything. So, when you have need for hardly anything, what Drew says is right. We don't see our need for God. But yet those who are homeless and hungry and are cold or whatever needs they may have, they see daily, hour by hour, minute by minute, their need for a God who would help them. The God who helps. So, this is why Jesus is saying it's harder for a rich man or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Because we don't, the rich man doesn't see his need for the gospel. So I think this is the same thing that Abraham is saying here. So he's not saying that because you had bad things, in, because you had good things in your lifetime, you go to hell. Because Lazarus had bad things in his lifetime, he goes to heaven. Lazarus saw himself, not just because of his name, but he saw himself as one who needed God's help. Okay? But then look at 26. Abraham said, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm, a great like canyon has been fixed in order that you who would pass from here to you may not be able, so Lazarus can't go over to you anymore, and none may cross from there to us. So you can't come over here with us. This reminds me of the book of Hebrews when the writer says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I don't know when this phenomenon started in the last like 6 to 12 months, but you guys are familiar with YOLO, right? What, what is YOLO? Yes. You, what does YOLO mean? You only live once, right? And when do people say YOLO? When they're doing idiotic things, right? <laughs> like, hey, we're driving 90 down the highway or on this mountain road, but YOLO, buddy, right? Or we're going to go out and get trash this weekend, but YOLO, right? You only live once, yeah? I think what the author of Hebrews and what Abraham is saying in our, in, our, in our parable here is it's not YOLO, it's YODO, right? You only die once. You've only got one shot at it, right? This life is all you have got. So you better take it seriously 
enough because after you die, the author of Hebrews says, comes judgment. It would be moronic to just go around living your life what Ryan talked about in our first service here, acting as if God does not see or care about what we do or our sin. You know why? You know why that's moronic? Because yo-do, buddy! Right? And that's what this man is experiencing now. He only had one life and he squandered it in pleasure for himself. He didn't care about the worship of God and he didn't care about the love of his neighbor and he's now experiencing the effects of that. Okay? So, it's a major point of this parable, but let's keep looking. 27 and 28. He said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that I may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This seems like a noble thing, right? He's like, hey, my brothers, they need to know about this. They need to know what's going to happen. But, again, he only, he's again making demands of Lazarus, again making demands of his errand boy, Lazarus, to go talk to his brothers. But then he doesn't say, hey, send Lazarus to Israel, send Lazarus to the tax collector, to the prostitute, to those who aren't believing, to the Pharisees. He says, send him to the one who is like me, or my social class. Right? So he's again, it seems like a noble request, but he's again neglecting his neighbor. But then Abraham says to him, he says, no. He said, they have, the, they have Moses and the prophets. This is verse 29. Let them hear them. He says, they've got all that they need for salvation in God's word. They have all that they need to understand how to be here with us. And Jesus, remember what we saw in verse 16? 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. The law and the prophets existed until John, but now they are fulfilled. They are swallowed up into me. So now he seems to be saying, you've got me. All that you need is in me. So trust and believe in me. And then the rich man does something really incredible. What is he, what, what's, what's kind of incredible about verse 30? Or audacious about verse 30? Should we read it? No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's still correcting Abraham. Like the father of Israel, he's correcting him. Making demands of his errand boy Lazarus and correcting Abraham. What the, who does this guy think he is? This guy is unbelievable. He says if they'll see a ghost, they'll repent, right? Just send a ghost to them and they'll repent. And Abraham says, you know what? No, they won't. They really, really won't. I'm reminded of Israel. You guys ever think this? I tend to think this. I think if God would like come out of the clouds like in like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? And like spoke to me, then I would like never doubt again. I would do whatever he would ask of me and I would believe without doubting ever again, right? But you know what? Jesus, well, Abraham says here, just look at the history of Israel. They had a Red Sea parted, a pillar of smoke and fire. You've got 
fire coming down with Elijah and like consuming the altar of bulls. Like God has shown himself powerful and mighty and miraculous all throughout Israel's history. And yet they still do not believe. Abraham is saying here that, you know what? They won't believe if they see a ghost. The only way they're going to believe is if God sends his spirit to ignite their hearts, to awaken their hearts, to believe in him. So you've got all you need in the Law and the Prophets, and you've got all that you need in what Jesus has taught to believe in God, to believe in the gospel. We don't need a ghost. We don't need a pillar of fire. just need to believe. And this is what we talked about a little bit last night in Elf, when Santa, at the end, right, he says the Christmas season is about believing, not seeing. This is again what Ryan talked about in the first service too. We are now in a state where we are believing without seeing that Jesus will come again. And yet we wait longingly, expectingly, waiting until that day that we actually do see him. It's hard sometimes, but it's good. It's good. And we, like Lazarus, believe in a God who helps us. Okay? So this is how we kind of understand this a little better. Let's not just stop it, understanding of it, but let's move into the, how does this, how does this change us? How does this affect us? How, do, how should we live this parable? First thing, I think, we see we need to understand the law and the prophets. How does Jesus sum up the law and the prophets? Remember what he says? Two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Or, as I summed it up a couple months ago, passion for God and compassion for people. This is the law and the prophets. If you don't have passion for God and and compassion for people, it's probably a good indicator that you might not actually believe in God. You might not actually believe in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Okay? So we need an understanding of the law and the prophets passion for God. We cannot have two masters. We cannot worship God and money, or God and acclaim, or fame, or acceptance, or approval, or a boyfriend, and a, or a girlfriend, or whatever it is. You cannot have two masters. That's the first part of the Law and the Prophets. Passion for God, but then compassion for people. I saw a guy this week on Twitter. I have no idea who he was. Somebody just retweeted him. He said, remember the homeless, see them, acknowledge them, treat them with dignity. Homeless does not equate to less than human. So he's not saying that every time you pull up to a corner on the highway and there's a guy with a sign that you drop 20 bucks in his hat, right? But see them, not just see them with your eyes, but see them, acknowledge them that they are human, the rich man does not see or acknowledge Lazarus, right? He saw him. He actually knew his name, but he didn't see him. He's, still, he's in hell, and he's still making demands of Lazarus. He doesn't acknowledge him as human. He sees, them, he sees him as less than human, one that shouldn't be treated with dignity. So how do, how do we do this? Again, I don't think it's 20 bucks every time you see a homeless person, right? But there's a group of students at UT when I was a student. Every Wednesday, Austin, for some reason, is like a mecca for the homeless. And the, the main drag 
in, uh, through the university campus, there's just hundreds of guys and girls just sitting outside on the sidewalk. And most of the time, they get ignored, right? And so there's a group of students who would go every Wednesday and introduce themselves and take them inside to Jack in the Box or McDonald's or whatever it is, buy them lunch, and just listen to their story. When we, when we completely dismiss the homeless or people who are less fortunate than ourselves as lazy or as surely they're drug addicts or whatever else, we're completely ignoring the fact that they got there for some reason. And it may be true that they're lazy and that they're a drug, drug addict, but something happened in their past that got them there where they are. How about we listen to that story, that we might love them compassionately. I don't know if you saw this viral picture that's going around Facebook and the internet this week, this New York Police Department officer. Did you guys see this? Uh, a week or two ago, there's this homeless man sitting outside on the sidewalk in New York City with no shoes, no socks, and the police officer goes into the Skechers store out, or where this homeless man was sitting outside of and buys him a pair of boots, a pair of $100 boots, and no one would have known that this happened at all had there not been a tourist from Arizona with her iPhone taking a picture. And now we like praise this guy as a hero. He's a New York cop that's like defying all the New York PD stereotypes, right? But he didn't do this to get fame, right? He was just showing compassion. He used his own resources, his own time and money to actually care for the guy. And he didn't just like drop the bag, right? The picture that we saw on Facebook, he's kneeling down, like getting on his level and showing actual compassion, right? And the only reason that we can do that with our resources and show compassion is if we see ourselves as a steward, as a manager, like our parable two weeks ago. That everything that we have is God's and he's given it to us to steward well, to manage well. Nothing that you have is yours. The rich man in our parable here only used his stuff for himself. He didn't see his stuff as God's stuff that God has temporarily allowed him to use for kingdom purposes. He saw his stuff as his stuff that he could use for his own kingdom purposes. Right? So we need a radical reorientation of how we see our stuff. It's not yours, it's God's that he has given you to manage well. And then again, what Jesus said earlier in, verse, in chapter 16, he says that if you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? If you don't manage or steward the kingdom of earth stuff, why do you think God is going to give to you kingdom of heaven stuff? And kingdom of heaven stuff is knowledge of Him, understanding of Him, actual passion for Him. Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians 2 that God reveals the things of Himself to us. We don't just stumble upon them by ourselves. God reveals those things to us. And He only reveals those things to us when we show ourselves to steward the kingdom of earth stuff well. Okay? So, we have to see ourselves as needy. We are the richest people in the history of the earth. So we have to see ourselves as needy first before we can actually show compassion towards people. Um, and the last thing, the Word of God is enough. We tend to want signs, right? 
Not just, maybe not even God showing himself in the clouds, but an easy life, a blessed life, a big house, approval, whatever that is. You don't need those things. God has given himself to us in his word. And that story, this story, is amazing. And is all we need for belief and salvation in God. We didn't have a video today for our modern parables, but I want to show you all one thing. It's a quick three-minute YouTube video. This is actually a, a kind of a commercial for this uh, church children's curriculum called the Gospel Project. We don't use it. Um, but this is an amazing like three-minute summary of this, of the law and the prophets and how the law and the prophets culminate and are fulfilled in Jesus. This story and the story that we're about to watch is enough. It is all we need for belief and salvation in Jesus. So I pray, I beg of you to believe it, to not worship two masters any longer, but to worship God, to have passion for Him, and to have compassion for others. You guys talk about that in our small groups. If you have questions about what it means to repent and believe and worship Him, uh, ask your leaders. Come to us after. Come to us throughout the week. Uh, it's our greatest desire for you not to like be good kids and to finish high school well and get to a good college, but I think I can speak for your parents in saying that our greatest longing for you is to be captivated by God through what He has done for you on the cross and for you to worship Him and Him only to have passion for Him and compassion for people, to pray, pray for you guys daily and weekly. That, that, that might happen. Um, so watch this. Be enamored by this story that God has told us 